Welcome to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit organization. I'm Lindsay Langholz, Senior Director for Policy and Program at ACS. Today on the podcast, we are going to take a look at the Supreme Court's recent decision in a case that we've been following here for a while now, Holland versus Burkine. It is one of those cases that could have gone a hundred different ways, but no matter which way the court chose, it had the potential to fundamentally shape or reshape Indian law as we know it. We are so fortunate to have Professor Winona Single joining us to take a look at this case and the incredibly important outcome that it produced. Professor Single is an associate professor of law at Michigan State University College of Law and director of the Indigenous Law and Policy Center. Her research and writing addresses issues related to tribal sovereignty and indigenous rights. And her most recent law review article, co-authored with previous guest of Broken Law, Matthew Fletcher, is titled Lawyering the Indian Child Welfare Act. Professor Single, welcome to Broken Law. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, we're so delighted to have you here. I, I want to start with some basics. It's been a while since this court heard oral arguments. So can you give us a refresher Just what's at issue in this case? Who are the parties and what were they asking the court to do? Absolutely. So this is a really incredibly important case for the entire field of federal Indian law, and it involved a challenge to the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And that challenge was brought by the state of Texas, as well as several sets of adoptive couples seeking to adopt Native children. And in addition, there were tribes that also intervened. And so we had participation of Navajo Nation and Cherokee and White Earth, and I believe also the Morongo Band. So we had extensive participation. And of course, also we had the participation of the Secretary of Interior as well. And so the case involved a challenge to the constitutionality of the statute. And it argued that this statute was violative of the Congress's constitutional authority in Indian affairs. And it also argued that the statute violated anti-commandeering doctrine. And it also, the parties also argued that it violated the non-delegation doctrine. And in addition, the parties also argued that it was violative of equal protection and that there are certain provisions of ICWA that were race-based provisions. And so I also would like to give a little bit of context regarding what ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act is, if I may. Please. Thank you. So a little bit of history, I think, is helpful for folks who aren't as familiar with this area of law and this part of our nation's history. And so the statute, of course, was passed in 1978, but it's really helpful to have a greater historical context to understand why it was passed. And so that really begins originally with treaties that were negotiated by tribes. And in many cases, and from the earliest, also in the earliest interactions between tribes and the federal government, children were often removed from their families. And so this was a longstanding practice. And there were many tribes also that had negotiated treaty provisions. And there were treaty provisions that also related to placement of children in schools. But we see a massive federal bureaucratic institutionalization of the removal of Native children from their homes and their placement into what we call Indian boarding schools in the United States beginning in the late 19th century. And so So we have, for example, Captain Richard Pratt of the United States military, who developed this idea that you could create a militarized form of institutional education for Native children. And literally, his motto was, 
kill the Indian and save the man. And it was this idea that we could eradicate the nation of native nations and of indigenous culture and peoples and fully assimilate them into the majority society. If we just remove them, remove children from their families and place them into educational institutions far from their homes. And so Colonel Richard Pratt first started the Carlisle Indian School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where students were removed from their homes from all across the United States, from tribal communities, um, and enrolled. Um, oftentimes, even though families had fought to retain their children, to keep their children, to hide um, from children, children were often rounded up and treated like animals. And of course, there was this incredibly racist notion that Native families were not civilized and that they were not capable of effectively raising their children and that Native people were savages. And so we have this long history of Indian boarding schools. And so from Carlisle, there was a massive expansion up to the point where we have over 408 Indian boarding schools operated in the United States. And these schools, many of them are federally operated Indian boarding schools. Many more are were operated by religious denominations. And so you have many operated by the Catholic Church, for example. And so these schools were funded by oftentimes, in most cases, by money that was intended to be compensated to tribes for the taking of their lands in, in accordance with treaty provisions. And furthermore, we have widespread scholarship and documentation of the fact that children who were sent to these boarding schools experienced profound physical, psychological, and sexual abuse. And in addition, they were often taught menial tasks, and they were young children were required to maintain the grounds of these schools. Often they were malnourished. They were intentionally separated from their family members, not allowed to speak their native language, stripped of all cultural regalia, and had their hair cut, and were really attempted to be fully stripped of all of their native identity. You know, this is a, something that has impacted everyone I know who is native, including myself. Both my grandmother and grandfather attended Holy Childhood School of Jesus in Harbor Springs, Michigan. And that's probably the oldest operating Indian boarding school since it started in 1823 and kept operating as an Indian boarding school until 1983. And so we have so many generations impacted by that. But then, of course, we also have a growing recognition that Indian boarding schools were completely underfunded and offered horrendous, unsafe conditions for children. And so that also was emphasized in the Merriam Report, a very famous report prepared by that precursor of today's Brookings Institute. And so it documented that disease was widespread, malnourishment, the conditions were terrible. And so we have in the later 20th century a recognition that it also was much cheaper to remove children, Native children, from their families and place them into foster care and encourage their adoption by non-Native families rather than institutionalize them in Indian boarding schools for their entire childhoods. And so in the 20th century, we see a massive shift of removing children frequently without any due process at all and placement of these Native children from tribes around the country into foster care homes and also adopted by non-Native families. And by 1978, we had massive amounts of testimony that was presented before Congress, in many cases of parents and in many cases Native mothers, saying to Congress, 
that their children had been taken without any form of due process. And not only was this a horrific harm to the fundamental human rights of their children and the parents and their families, but it also threatened the very continued existence of Indian tribes themselves in the United States. It was that extensive. So in 1978, the American Association on Indian Affairs also recognized that 25 to 35 percent of all Native children were being removed and placed into foster care or adoption. That's a staggering stat. I want to I want to make sure that we stop and, and really give that stat a moment because is. that is yes. an overwhelming number of people. And we're talking about incredibly recent history. This is not, not something we that are. happened to people that have long been gone. This is something that has hugely right. shifted current current tribal communities and that's right that's right and it's it's so personal to our families and our communities in Indian country yeah. I'm a tribal member I'm a member of little Traverse Bay bands of Odawa Indians in Michigan and descendant of little river band in Michigan and so in addition to my both my grandparents going to Indian boarding school at holy childhood when when they had five children all five of their children were removed by Catholic social services oh my and God. My, my mother was taken as an infant and placed into foster care homes. She lived in several foster care homes until she was five when she was adopted with one of her biological sisters by a non-Native Catholic family in the Detroit area. But two of her other siblings grew up in foster care until they reached adulthood. And so I'm just, I can't imagine the challenges and difficulties they must have experienced. And then we have this perpetuation because, you know, multiple generations now had experienced both the Indian boarding schools as a trauma and as a harm to our ability to know our culture and exercise and participate in that culture and be connected to our communities. And then we've also experienced the effects of removal of our children and placement into foster care and adoption. And I even, um, when I was four, lost my younger sister to adoption. So I spent my entire childhood and much of my adulthood searching for her, then finding her and trying to, you know, build a relationship. And so across Indian country, we are, we are hurting. We have experienced the tearing apart of our families. And so that's part of why ICWA is just, we are such passionate advocates and we have passionate advocates across the country. And I really want to elevate the voices of those who are the descendants of these ancestors who experienced these policies generation after generation. And there's a lot of intergenerational cumulative trauma in our communities that we need to heal. And that's why we were so concerned about what the Supreme Court would do when it reviewed ICWA. So ICWA was ultimately passed in 1978 by Congress because of its recognition of this widespread removal of children from their families. And what ICWA did and what it does is it provides both substantive and procedural protections so that, for example, if an Indian child is subject to a custody proceeding and they're domiciled outside of Indian country, then the state and the tribe have concurrent jurisdiction and the tribe can petition for transfer of that jurisdiction. And if the child is domiciled within Indian country, then the tribe has exclusive jurisdiction. And in addition, there are other important aspects of ICWA, such as the fact that it includes placement preferences. And so this is this goes to the heart of trying to keep Native families and Native communities intact. And so the first placement preference for a child is for that child to be placed with a member of their extended family. 
And then second, with a member of a family from their tribe. And then third, with another Indian family, which could be a family from another Indian tribe. And so the adoptive couples, non-native couples that were challenging ICWA, were also arguing that that third placement preference violates equal protection. And so a lot of concern about ICWA. And also it's important to recognize that there's been a really long, concerted, coordinated attack on in the Indian Child Welfare Act. We've had the Goldwater Institute out of Phoenix, Arizona, and we don't know who all of their funders are, but we know that they've been looking for test cases across the country for years, seeking to challenge the lawfulness of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And in addition, this case was initially brought in federal district court in Texas and ultimately was decided in favor of the plaintiffs. So that was very concerning. And then that case was appealed to the Fifth Circuit. And ultimately, it was also the Fifth Circuit also reviewed it on Bonk. And it was an incredibly complicated Bonk opinion over 300 pages long because there's so many important, huge issues presented by this case. So if you want to can go into Yeah, that. there is a number <laughs> of, of arguments, right? For, for yeah. someone watching from the outside, it kind of felt like throwing every argument that they had at the wall. That's right. Like, Throwing spaghetti at the yeah. wall to see what would stick. <laughs> and, and so I want to unpack, used a couple terms earlier. And so just for the, the non-lawyers in the audience, or maybe even just lawyers who don't deal with these particular issues that often, you mentioned commandeering and then also the non-delegation doctrine. And would you mind just explaining just, just briefly kind of what each of those mean kind of what the arguments were that were on those fronts. And then we'll get rid of them. As, sure, as sure. <laughs> yeah, because they're not huge aspects of the case, yeah. but so they, so the, but they're important. So the anti-commandeering doctrine is a doctrine that the Congress cannot commandeer state officers to implement state laws, but that's specific to the legislative and executive branches of state government. And the Indian Child Welfare Act actually is a law that applies to state courts and state court decision-making. And it also requires that states engage in certain functions that are ancillary to their court process, such as the requirement that state courts provide notice to tribes when there's an Indian child in a proceeding before it that's covered by the statute. And so it was a huge surprise that ultimately the Supreme Court, you know, issued a 7-2 opinion and it ultimately held that ICWA did not violate anti the anti-commandeering doctrine because it only applied directly to state courts and via the supremacy clause, state courts specifically are required to comply with federal law. And so the court did not find that there was any merit to that argument. And then in addition, in terms of non-delegation, it was a really unusual argument because the argument was that the Indian Child Welfare Act recognizes that Indian tribes can determine their own placement preferences for the placement of an Indian child. That is not a delegation of authority. There is no attempt of Congress to vest tribes with some kind of legislative authority that they do not otherwise independently exercise. And there just is absolutely no merit to the non-delegation doctrine. Tribes exercise their own inherent sovereign. And don't and this is not a an example of any kind of delegation and certainly not then a, a violation of the doctrine. So that leaves the two major issues in the case, which is Congress's authority in Indian affairs to pass ICWA and whether this was a violation of equal protection. So let's start with Congress, since that is where the majority opinion spent most of their time. 
the the argument was basically that this was beyond Congress's control. That was the argument that was put forward by by the adoptive parents in, in Texas. I want to ask both what did the court decide, but also what has the court decided previously? Because there's been a long case history here, both on this particular case, but also going back in terms of the the ability of Congress to legislate Indian affairs. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, it's a huge question. And we were really concerned, obviously, those who follow Indian law and are advocates for tribal sovereignty, because in attacking Congress's authority to pass Indian Child Welfare Act, this could potentially have been an attack on Congress's authority to legislate in a variety of other areas in Indian affairs as well. So it had this potential ripple effect that could go way beyond child welfare, even though the child welfare context itself is incredibly important. And so I just want to provide some context to the Indian Commerce Clause argument and the argument related to Congress's authority in Indian affairs. So the best place to start is what that clause called the Indian Commerce Clause. And in Justice Barrett's majority opinion, she clarified that Indian commerce is not limited, as in Lopez, to trade and bartering, for example, but is rather a broader concept. And then in addition to that, Indian commerce really goes back to intercourse with Indian tribes and is unique also in that, in Justice Gorsuch, in his concurring opinion, also elaborated very extensively on his interpretation of Congress's authority in in Indian affairs. And, And he also wrote that the Indian Commerce Clause applies to commerce with Indian tribes, whereas the Commerce Clause is applied to the states, applies to commerce among the states. And he highlighted how commerce among the states really is limited to those interactions, cross-border interactions between states, and that it implied that Congress doesn't have authority domestically within individual states. But when the Commerce Clause refers to commerce with Indian tribes, that's much broader and also is part of a history of regulating interactions with Indian tribes individually, directly, and not just in terms of, you know, tribe-to-tribe interaction, for example. So Justice Gorsuch provided a really lengthy, really robust analysis of the sources of Congress's authority in Indian affairs, and also linked it to, for example, the fact that Congress also has authority based on treaties that are entered into with tribes. And so those treaties can also give Congress authority to regulate Indian affairs. And then also noted that there's a long history of commerce, including interaction and intercourse with tribes, which was intended to not just be limited to trade and bartering, but was related to really the full gamut of government to government interactions and maintaining peace and maintaining, you know, stability and safety within Indian country. And so really a very strong support statement in support of Congress's authority in Indian affairs. But what's also important is that Gorsuch's concurrence also carefully identified that Indian affairs power that Congress may have is not unlimited. There's absolutely limitations to that authority. And noted that, for example, which was I thought very interesting that Gorsuch also said that the Congress wouldn't have authority to completely deny the self-determination of tribes in the United States. And so there are also other constitutional provisions that apply to Congress's authority in Indian affairs and limit that authority. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. 
ACS is a 501c3 nonprofit nonpartisan organization committed to protecting our democratic legitimacy and supporting laws and legal systems that improve the lives of all people. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. Our laws and legal systems impact all of us. By joining ACS, you support Broken Law, our work to diversify the federal bench, our advocacy in support of Supreme Court reform, and truth, racial healing, and transformation and so much more. You also become a member of our nationwide network, which includes over 250 student and lawyer chapters. Join ACS and the progressive legal movement today by visiting our website at acslaw.org backslash membership. And now back to the conversation. I want to ask about the the issue that loomed over this case, but the court didn't actually decide to, to really engage with. And that is the, the claims that ICWA violates the Equal Protection Clause. Where did the court shake out on that question? And, and kind of what did they say? And maybe more importantly, even what didn't they say when it came to those claims? Yeah. So the court concluded that the parties did not have standing to reach the equal protection arguments raised by the parties. And so this was incredibly important. And the standing issue is important because the this is a federal court case, but ICWA is actually enforced in state courts. And so when ICWA is actually applied in, in Texas state court, for example, those Texas courts are not bound to apply a federal court decision interpreting ICWA. And so we would need to have a new case that would be appealed and where cert is granted by the U.S. Supreme Court that actually involves parties in state court where a decision could potentially actually provide a meaningful remedy for those parties. And so, yeah, so the court found that, that standing was lacking and as a result did not reach equal protection. And I just want to add that the equal protection argument was really quite terrifying because there is a long-standing precedent in Indian affairs based on a Supreme Court case called Morton v. Mankari. And that decision broadly stands for the proposition that legislation and federal policies impacting Indian tribes and Indian people are based on the unique political status of Indians and are not based on their race. And that, in fact, because it's based on their political status as members, uh, citizens of federally recognized tribes with a government-to-government relationship with the United States, that those federal laws and policies are not subject to strict scrutiny and instead are subject to rational basis review. So what's really important about Morton v. Mancari and this precedent is that federal laws that are specific to Indian tribes and Indian people, when they're subject to that rational basis review, the Supreme Court must look to whether the laws further Congress's, the federal government's unique obligation to Indian tribes and Indian people. So if the court had held that, in fact, tribes are race-based entities and had concluded that it was willing to overrule the precedent of Morton v. Mancari that also could have had huge destabilizing effects for the entire field of Indian affairs. So that was a great concern. And we're, you know, I'm absolutely thankful for the effective advocacy of the particularly of Ian Gershengorn and Lenny Powell at Jenner and Black and, and, and also of Keith Harper and Kate Fort because they did a terrific job and it was so important that the court not reach this, this particular issue. But 
that said, as Justice Kavanaugh noted in his concurring opinion, there may be another case in the future that might raise squarely the issue of equal protection where the parties do have standing to raise that argument. And in fact, there are, you know, there is another case percolating that in state court where that argument could be raised and appealed. But at the same time, the Goldwater Institute and those who have been seeking to undo the protections of ICWA have been trying for years now to attack ICWA, and they've been so far unsuccessful. And so I think it's difficult to find the right vehicle for a case that would properly raise these kinds of challenges. And so I don't expect that will immediately have a case that squarely presents the issue of equal protection, but it is a possibility in the future. That said, I also want to clarify that the equal protection argument in the case appeared to most focus most specifically on the third placement preference in ICWA. So it focuses on the placement preference where if there's no extended family member available for the Indian child for placement and there's no family from that child's tribe available for placement, then a state court would then look to a possible family placement from another tribe. And so I I attended the oral argument in the case back in November and I remember Justice Barrett asking, well, if you if the provision allows for placement with a family from another tribe, aren't you just treating all tribes as fungible? And I think what she was getting at was that if its placement can be made with a family from another tribe, then isn't it not based specifically on that child's, you know, tribal government to government relationship? And is it more likely to be race based? And I think that there's concern about that. But I also think it's important to note that, you know, while all tribes, we have 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States, and there's an incredible amount of diversity. At the same time, we have many tribes like in Michigan, where I live, where we have shared histories, where we have shared family relationships, relatives at multiple tribes. My chil- I have two children, and they have family relatives in six of Michigan's 12 federally recognized tribes. They're well represented. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so they have, you know, Michigan's tribes, for example, share a lot of cultural aspects. We are Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi, but we, we also share common history in terms of relationships with the federal government. And so I do, I do think that, you know, if, for example, one Michigan tribe did not have a family available for an Indian child from that tribe in a state court decided to place a child with another Michigan tribe, you're not treating those tribes as though they're, they're just race-based fungible entities. They do have similar histories and they are similarly situated. And as, you know, other sovereign governments, they have a similar, you know, government to government relationship with the United States and with that tribe. Absolutely. I, I want to ask more broadly about ICWA's success. You know, your, your example caused me to think like, well, how, how has this been working? I know I've seen some places experts have, have claimed ICWA to be the gold standard. And so what does that practically mean? What, how has that looked and, and how do you anticipate it going forward now that ICWA has been upheld? Yeah. So one of the things that's so important about ICWA that makes it successful is that it requires active efforts. You have to have active efforts to reunite a family. And so you need to actually have support for reuniting that child with their parents and address whatever conditions may have led to the child being removed from the home. 
And so we need to have child welfare policy across the United States that requires similar active efforts to provide supports to families to support their reunification with their children. And so that's one of the reasons why ICWA is looked upon across the U.S. as the gold standard in child welfare. That said, we since ICWA's passage in 1978, the statute has a long history of being ignored in state courts. And so we've had organizations like the Casey Foundation that have invested significant resources into investigating and identifying failure of state courts to comply with ICWA's provisions. And we've also had a lot of efforts across the United States to support greater education for state courts, for state court judges, and you know, for guardian ad litems and for all the folks who are involved in making decisions about the future of Indian children in state court proceedings. And so we do know that in many cases, for example, where the statute requires that the child be, if they are identified as an Indian child under the definitions of the statute, that notice has to be given to the tribe so that they can have the option to intervene or seek jurisdiction to exercise jurisdiction over the case. And in many cases, that notice is is not provided. Or even though the child or statements may be made that indicate the child may be a member of a tribe, no one actually officially asks and investigates to confirm whether that's true so that they can ensure that the proper notice is given. So throughout U.S. history, since passage of ICWA in 1978, we've had a lot of failure of state courts to comply. And we have a lot of instances where state courts are still removing Native children without affording due process. And so we had, there's a class action that was brought in South Dakota, which also alleged massive failure to provide appropriate due process for Native families um, in child welfare cases in state court. And so we know that we need to ensure greater accountability and compliance with the statute's provisions. And so we need greater resources for that. And in addition, tribes need greater resources. Many tribes have very large child welfare dockets. So Cherokee Nation in the United States and also Navajo Nation have the largest Indian child welfare dockets. And of course, any tribe around the country could receive notification that a child perhaps thousands of miles away in a state court proceeding is an Indian child who's a member of their tribe or who has a biological parent who's enrolled in a tribe where the child's eligible to enroll and they meet the definition of Indian child. And it can be very difficult for those tribes to immediately respond and participate and intervene in a case or to transfer jurisdiction if they have the ability to do that. And so we need tribes to have the supports and capacity to fully exercise their rights in Indian Child Welfare Act cases. And then in addition to that, there's been a movement, which I want to also call out my colleague at Michigan State University, Kate Ford, because she's also worked extensively on supporting states across the United States, which have been adopting statutes at the state level that provide for analogous child Indian child welfare protections, both procedural and substantive protections. And so where you may have federal protections, you have also, you know, the state protections, which can go even further than the protections under ICWA. And so both must be enforced and complied with. So a lot of work still needs to be done because we only have a, you know, a minority of states that have adopted those kinds of statutes, but there's an effort to support enactment of those statutes throughout much more of the United States. It's such an important point because 
there is no doubt that the case has been received as a win and an important, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're done. And whew, we got through that one and the work is put to the side. There is still a lot that can be done to actually actively help on these issues. That's not just whew, we survived the Roberts court and lived to fight another day. And so I'm curious what you see the legal future of those state-based ICWA or, or ICWA similar statutes going forward. Are, are they in a safe place now, given what we got out of Burkin, or what can we read in the tea leaves there? Well, I think that there may be legal challenges at the state level or even at the federal level for those state-based laws. And so, for example, there could be a challenge to state authority to legislate in the arena of Indian affairs. We know that, for example, when Congress legislates in Indian affairs and that legislation is subject to the rational basis test, um, the Supreme Court looks to Congress or the federal government's unique obligations to Indian tribes. And so I think that states, when they defend these statutes, will need to emphasize that they're based on Indian children who are enrolled or eligible for enrollment where their parents are enrolled in a federally recognized tribe. And it's based on protection of citizens of sovereigns, separate sovereigns, you know, that are recognized by the state. So that's of critical importance. But I do have concerns that potentially we could see parties seeking to challenge state authority to adopt these statutes in Indian affairs. But we've had lots of legislation that the states have adopted in Indian affairs. So it's not a complete, unique animal. And so I think that we need to be supportive of states as providing sort of a bulwark and a secondary and important in in state jurisdictions, it would be a a primary law that provides protection for Indian children as well. And also such an important way for states to remedy and provide for healing by recognizing, hey, they have a long, states have a long history of abusive practices, where in many cases, state officers remove Native children from their families based on stereotypes. Studies have shown that in almost all cases where Native children were removed from their families before passage of ICWA, it was not based on any form of physical abuse, but often was based on the idea that because tribes, tribal families were impoverished, that they must have been neglecting their children. And there were even quotes that, you know, that children must be just removed from the Indian, all Indian reservations. And so I think that the states had a role in that. And so it's actually really healing and in such an important way for states to show that they're breaking with that past and supporting tribal sovereignty and the protection of Indian children and Indian families by passing these laws at the state level. You know, Canada has actually, in places and nationally, gone through an actual truth and racial healing style process on dealing with their past with India boarding schools. And we certainly have not seen any national movement on that front here. There is a main commission that that had some success. But I'm curious, how do we get to a place where there is more of an actual both understanding of our history here and also ways in which we can move past this conversation where it's like, oh, well, it's in the past and and really like reckon with the ways that it is informing our current society and that we can't just put something in the past and, and, and pretend like it didn't happen. Are there ways that we can move forward on this particular issue? Yeah. So I think that our nation as a whole really needs truth telling. So we can't expect healing if we don't allow for the accountability that follows from 
acknowledging the, the truth of the harms that Native families, Native children, and tribal communities have experienced. And so I really want to say that Secretary Holland and the Department of Interior's Road to Healing process has been an important part of that. It's focused on the impacts of Indian boarding schools, and it's resulted in an initial report on Indian boarding schools. And I want to congratulate my former student and friend, Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs, Brian Newland, for work and, and leadership on that. But it's allowed for both survivors of Indian boarding schools and their descendants to participate in listening sessions that are ha- happening around the country. One happened in my own tribe's territory in Pelson, Michigan, last August. And these sessions last for all day. I mean, we, it, there's an unbroken flow of individuals coming forward to tell horrific stories of abuse and psychological terror that they experienced in in boarding schools. And in my tribe's case, there was a lot of focus on the experience of survivors of holy childhood. And so we need more of this truth-telling in order to have accountability. And I also would like to see more recognition of the link, right? We shouldn't isolate the Indian boarding school experience from the experience of removal of children and placement into foster care and adoption. We have to recognize that there are patterns of consistency of removal in U.S. history. There are through lines and continuous threads. And so every generation has been impacted in a different way. And there's absolutely a connection between the the period of Indian boarding schools and then the transition to removal of Indian children and their placement into foster care and adoptive homes. So I would like truth-telling for all of that. And furthermore, I'm also glad that Sharice Davids, for example, who's a member of Congress and a Native woman, she's Ho-Chunk, and she has sponsored legislation to create a federal truth and reconciliation process to promote this truth-telling. And I think that we need that greater sharing of our history of, of the various harms that have been inflicted on our ancestors and our, and our families, our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers and grandparents and ourselves. And then we can also talk about what healing and justice requires. And I think what's also important and unique about Indian affairs is that our families have been experiencing intergenerational trauma generation after generation. You know, I'm, I'm writing a book about my own family's history and the impact of, of colonization and Indian affairs policies on every generation going back to 1840. And every generation experienced either forcible removal or violent displacement. My ancestors experienced the Burt Lake burnout where the sheriff of their county in Michigan completely burned down their tribal village in order to displace them. And then the following generations attended Indian boarding schools. And and then the generations after that, multiple generations, experienced the loss of their children in their placement of foster care and adoption. So it's just, I would like for us to to recognize that this is all interconnected and it's been continuous. And I think that we need to recognize the full extent of the harm and then talk about what how we might remedy that. I know a lot of people in Native communities are very distrustful that the federal government will devise a way to provide full justice and healing. And many tribes would like to, I think we need to support 
tribes in exercising their sovereignty and support their capacity to provide for healing within their communities. I think that that's much more likely to be trusted and embraced by tribal members. But I also don't discount that there's value and purpose and effect resulting from reparations, for example. We saw that we had reparations in the context of Japanese internment in the United States. And I think that the, that's an that's a important possibility as well. But we could also look to healing and justice for Native people in the, in the sense of also providing greater strength and support for tribes as they exercise their sovereignty and self-governance to protect their communities. I want to ask and and leave on what folks can do if they're listening and feel either inspired to learn more or to take action and and what they might be able to do. And before you answer, I want to plug Justice Gorsuch's concurrence because he lifts up your work quite a bit in that retelling of history. And so I want to, I want to make sure that your work is recognized in this space as well, because you've been doing a great job of, of giving everyone their flowers, but but your work was certainly noticed by the court and, and was really important in that storytelling. And so I'll turn it to you for other sources, but I wanted to make sure to, to put that plug in. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was a great honor to be cited by Justice Gorsuch, you know, so many times in his concurrence. But I think there are a lot of resources available. An organization that I think folks may be interested in supporting is NICWA, the National Indian Child Welfare Association. So I think that they provide a lot of support for tribes around the country, and they also provide a cohesive network of advocacy in Indian Child Welfare Act cases. So I highly support looking them up. NICWA, they you know, have a great website. They have great newsletters and magazines and lots of information to share. And also for folks who would like to learn more about the history of Indian boarding schools, there's a lot of amazing, important books and scholarship that have been produced. So For example, Education for Extinction is a really important book in that area. And in addition, I would really encourage people to check out an organization called NABS, which is the Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. And NABS also has a website that you can go to, and it has a resources page where you can look up lots of articles and books on the topic as well. And so, again, these histories are not separate. They're fully connected. And so I encourage folks to, to try to learn more about both of them. We will be sure to include links in the show notes so you don't have to go far to find them. But mostly, I just want to say, Professor Single, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your sharing your story and your insight. We really, really appreciate you being here and, and are so grateful. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be here. So it's been wonderful talking with you. The the pleasure is mine. I also want to thank our listeners for finding Broken Long. Please be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. As the court continues their slow pace towards the end of this term, um, we will be continuing to break down key cases. And so please stay tuned. If you're enjoying this show, help us bring it to more listeners by giving us a five-star review and recommending Broken Long to a friend. If you have ideas for future episodes, please let us know. You can email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at acslaw. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interest it really serves, and whose it does not. <laughs>